0: Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics, or society. Prison staff attacked with cue balls. Deaths in custody could have been avoided. Government urged to reduce prison population as conditions reached worst ever seen. Just some of the headlines published by the UK press recently about the country's prisons. And it is with alarming regularity that stories of prison violence, overcrowding and concerns over the impact of funding cuts are hitting the headlines. With 46% of all prisoners re-offending within a year of release last year, the system could be considered not just expensive and unpleasant, but failing. In this episode, Jess Winterstein takes a look at the prison system in England and Wales and asks, is our prison system broken?
1: 1993 Michael Howard, UK Home Secretary, presents his view of prison at the Conservative Party conference.
2: Let's be clear. Prison works. It ensures that we are protected from murderers, muggers and rapists. And it makes many who are tempted to commit crime think twice.
1: Tough and uncompromising in tone, the Home Secretary promised that the success of the UK's justice system would no longer be judged by whether there had been a fall in prison population or not. Nearly 25 years on, and England and Wales has the highest imprisonment rate in Western Europe, followed by Scotland. While, by Michael Howard's logic, these figures may not by themselves indicate a problem, with each prisoner costing the state on average £40,000 each year of incarceration – prisoner riots in Birmingham and Hertfordshire in the past year, and the government having to apply to the High Court to stop its prison officers from striking. Even those with a zero-tolerance attitude to crime might question if our prisons are in trouble. If we're to understand if the system truly is at fault, perhaps we first need to ask what prisons are fundamentally there for. Nicola Lacey, School Professor of Law, Gender and Social Policy at LSE, explains the origins of the modern prison system. Prison was, in a sense, the quintessentially
3: modern form of serious punishment. It took over, it was thought to be more civilised than capital and corporal penalties, which persisted and were the dominant forms of serious punishment in countries like this one up till the late 18th century. So in a way, imprisonment, although we now think of it as a very Um, you know, potentially very costly and cruel institution was conceived as quite a a modern progressive institution. But really from its very early period, it suffered difficulties in delivering the sorts of things that it ostensibly promised. Of course, people thought that imprisonment could deliver punishment, could deliver justice, retributive justice to offenders. But from very early on, the, the prison was also conceived as delivering forward looking policy goals like deterrence of both prisoners and others, uh, but also
1: rehabilitation or reform of prisoners. A sector that aims to both punish and reform those who have committed a crime is never going to have an easy ride. But with the cost of reoffending by former prisoners estimated at £15 billion pounds a year, rehabilitation surely has to be a priority if not for moral, then financial reasons. I asked Professor Lacey if the system was living up to its promise when it comes to prisoner reform. This is probably the
3: dimension in which prison has been the greatest disappointment. And in some ways, to be fair about it, I think you'd have to say that when you ask yourself fair-mindedly, why do prison systems have so much difficulty reforming their their subjects, their inmates, uh, the people sent to them, is that most people who go to prison go to prison for a relatively short period of time. And when they come out again, their relationships, their housing, their working lives have inevitably been uh, disrupted by imprisonment. So however good their experience of imprisonment has been, however much education they've had, however much... Uh, drug and alcohol counselling, however much social training, psychiatric care, therapy, none of which happens to a very great degree, by the way, but even if they'd had all that, when they come out again into a very demanding real world, it's very hard for them to get back into the system. Of course, some people do it, but it's a very tough thing for prison to counter that broader a much more pervasive and long-lasting social environment.
1: So rather than giving people the chance to take stock and reflect, the act of imprisonment itself can make it harder for prisoners to turn their lives around on release. And with 38% of young offenders alone reported as having returned to crime within 12 months of leaving prison last year, the highest level for more than 10 years, it certainly seems that prisons have a fair way to go before they can be judged a success on these terms. Simon Bastow, an LSE Fellow in the Department of Management, agrees that there are many challenges to rehabilitating those in the system.
2: The idea that you know, we can put people in prison and expect prisons to suddenly rehabilitate vulnerable and you know, excluded or you know, complex individuals is, is, is a sort of managerial absurdity really. And it's amazing really that you know, th- throughout the 90s and 2000s the Prison Service didn't have a target for rehabilitation, it had a target for pretty much everything else. Hundreds of targets, key performance indicators, but not one for the 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 extent to which it rehabilitates. To you know, to the government's credit, it's begun to focus much more explicitly on rehabilitation, um, which um, which is a good thing. We're not talking about a revolution here. We're talking about some very very incremental improvements in the rehabilitation rates or reoffending rates.
1: Earlier this year, the UK government appeared to acknowledge that the system was failing to adequately rehabilitate, with Justice Secretary Elizabeth Truss promising the biggest overhaul of prisons in a generation. A new Prisons and Courts Bill would for the first time set out in statute that the purpose of the prison system is safety and rehabilitation. I asked Professor Lacey if this might be a turning point. So rehabilitation, reforming people, educating them,
3: treating them in prison is the great idea that is rediscovered every 10, 20, 30 years, ever since the prison was created. And it's hard to deliver on. Of course, it's true that at various points, uh, it does become sort of lost sight of. But on the whole, and indeed in our sentencing legislation, rehabilitation reform is one of the stated aims of punishment and aims of imprisonment. And generally, uh, Home Secretaries, Lord Chancellors, Ministers of Justice are reluctant to say, no, we're not interested in rehabilitating people. Because honestly, it's a bit like apple pie, isn't it? It seems like a great idea. So if we think back to uh, the Conservative government under Margaret Thatcher, particularly, I'm thinking of the period actually when Michael Howard was Home Secretary, and he had a very retributive view of imprisonment. He said, prison just works. Axiomatically, prison works. It's not about deterrence or reform. It is appropriate that people who have done serious crimes, committed serious crimes, are sent to prison. That's what they deserve. Now, if you have that view, you're not really bothered about rehabilitation.
1: There are, of course, those who would agree that prisons by definition are supposed to be unpleasant and that support should be for the victims of crime rather than those who have committed often terrible acts. While reports on increasing overcrowding and regular prison violence suggest that life inside is anything but an easy ride, perhaps when it comes to retributive justice, prisons could be judged more successful. Sharon Shalev, a fellow at the Mannheim Centre for the Study of Criminology and Criminal Science at LSE and founder of solitaryconfinement.org, studies the practice of prisoner segregation. While solitary could be considered the most punishing form of prisoner experience in the UK since the death penalty was abolished, even this, she argues, was conceived through a desire to reform
4: rather than punish. This this form of um, imprisonment is not new, it has been used in the 19th century in what were called the silent or the separate penitentiaries. There, there was a a philosophy behind isolating prisoners. The idea was that they would be left alone with only their conscience and the good Bible, They will have time to reflect on their evil ways, repent and somehow miraculously be transformed into law-abiding citizens. What they discovered then, and what we're discovering now, is that rather than being reformed, people just lost their mind. Sharon defines
1: solitary as a person locked up alone in a single room, being isolated both physically and socially from others for the majority of the day. While it may have its roots in a just idea, Research has shown that instead of encouraging reform, isolation can be extremely damaging. Despite this, it is all too often used as a way to manage problematic prisoners. Solitary
4: confinement is incredibly damaging to health and well-being. Um, people report uh, hearing voices, seeing sights. Um, they become very paranoid. Uh, they become very depressed. A lot of people report difficulties sleeping. Um, and all sorts of other physical conditions that are related to being confined to a very small place without the ability to exercise, to breathe fresh air, to see to a distance. Um, and uh, for lack of a better, better way to put it, a lot of people do lose their mind. Solitary confinement uh, is supposed to be a tool of last resort. I found, I'm afraid, in all the jurisdictions I study in depth, so in the US, in England and Wales, and more recently in New Zealand, that it is not used as a last resort. Certainly for certain prisoners, it's used as a first resort. You said that sort of
1: back in the 19th century, there was this idea behind it that it would rehabilitate people, and now we know that that doesn't happen. In which case, why do you think we're still putting people through this? Um, I mean, is it that it's a kind of easy way to manage potentially difficult people?
4: I think that there is an element of convenience, certainly. You know, you have a problematic person, you have a challenging person, and certainly some prisoners are very, very challenging, and they also have very high needs. So you can get someone who is both um, challenging in terms of how they behave, but also challenging in terms of the things that they need. So they can have learning difficulties, for example. They can have issues with anger management. So certainly some difficult, challenging people. And the easiest thing to do is just to shove the problem away, you know, lock it up quite literally behind... Uh, a closed door and forget all about it. The problem with that attitude is that, uh, first of all, uh, we now know research shows that uh, rather than uh, curtailing violence, actually solitary confinement can make people much more violent. So the problem is that A, instead of um, managing violence, we're potentially creating violence. And the second problem is that most prisoners at the end of the day will be released to our communities. Now, Do you want a neighbour who's been locked up in a tiny cell for a year, two years, 10 years, 15 years, released directly from their isolated cell back to the community? Do you want them as a neighbour? I would argue possibly not. Given the damage that solitary can cause to a person's mental state,
1: the idea of prisoners deliberately getting themselves locked up in segregation seems improbable. Yet this is exactly what Sharon found when she visited segregation and close supervision centres in prisons in England and Wales. Just over a third of those she interviewed admitted to having deliberately engineered their way into solitary. I asked her what her findings might reveal about prison life.
4: Now, as someone who's been advocating against the use of segregation uh, for 25 years, I have to say this shocked me because how can anyone in their right mind intentionally work their way into this horrible environment that I was just describing? Um, Again, digging a bit uh, deeper, what... I think that we have to look at engineered segregation in light of the terrible state of our prisons. I think that the fact that so many people intentionally work their way into segregation should hint to us at the dreadful state of our prisons. I think that if the wings were safe, nobody would intentionally work their way into segregation.
1: So we have a prison system that is not only failing to effectively rehabilitate, but which has led to some prisoners finding its most extreme form of punishment preferable to life in the general prison population. I asked Simon Bastow how far a lack of resources was to blame for the present perception that the system was in crisis.
2: Traditionally, prisons have always been bits of the public sector that have been associated with crisis or a sense of permanent failing or permanent struggling uh, just because of the nature of the work they do. Um, and so there is an element of um, of that, and um, and also, you know, traditionally, depending on which government of the day is in power, um, governments and treasuries probably quite like to undersupply resources to the prison service because they probably rather spend money on education and health and various other things that that, um, that are you know are possibly closer to the median voter, um, and so uh, perhaps you know prison systems will always be. Various reasons, a poor relation across you know the public sector as a whole. But uh, there are very strong signs at the moment that, that the system is under severe stress. I would say, well, we're facing um, incredible budget cuts to the system. 25% has since 2010 has been has been stripped off the bone um, of the ingle Wales prison system and. Uh, very few private sector companies have to cope with that sort of reduction in their capacity and resources in such a short period of time. So we perhaps shouldn't be surprised that that prisons are struggling or see, appear to be struggling in in you know, in all sorts of in all areas of the prison system. So there is that. We've had um, some really high-profile examples of violent incidents and you know investigative report investigative journalistic insights into disruption, chaos, lack of regime uh, in uh, institutions. And they might be prisons, but they're also immigration detention centres and, um, uh, and secure training centres and all of these institutions that exist in and around the criminal justice system. So, um, you know, that's very worrying. I mean, what is going really badly wrong is this sort of cost-cutting, um, but, not, but cost-cutting without the underlying systems to compensate for that um so you know if you if you just cut costs without the the capital underneath to absorb all of the the fewer people um then that's very very dangerous and that's what, where you get into problems okay so there's uh, you can't just sort of, sort of cut 25% of the budget mainly by getting rid of you know having early retirements and i mean 80% of the prison services aid, it costs is staff so it has to kind of staff so um y- you you have to do that. You have to look at that seriously and think. You know, how much can the, can the system take, really?
1: Nicola Lacey also highlights lack of funding as a reason that the prison service is struggling to affect real reform of prisoners.
3: There are two problems about rehabilitation in prisons. The first is that the prison experience is a relatively small experience compared with the rest of somebody's life. Second problem, of course, is finding the resources. And the skills and the policy tools to really deliver, as best one can, rehabilitation in prisons. And this is where I think the current situation of prisons in this country is such that even the relatively modest rehabilitative gains that can be made in humane, well-resourced, well-staffed prisons are not being made because our system is Starved of resources, not well managed, piecemeal in its accountability and uh, really uh, a very shaming thing actually.
1: This lack of investment means that many are still housed in an antiquated and unmodernised estate despite a growing prison population. It was partly as a response to overcrowding and to spread the costs of housing prisoners that the UK government allowed privately managed prisons in the 1990s. There are currently 14 private prisons operating in the UK. I asked Simon how public private prisons differed, and if the answer to at least some of the strains on the state system could be more
2: privatisation. It's undoubtedly the case that public sector prisons have been undercapitalised and underinvested in, and don't have much technology in, and and really have been relying on what you know you and I would would think as obsolete systems in a digital era. Uh, so you know across many local prisons where you know there are lots of people in the reception and there's a big book and prisoners come in maybe from court or from um, another prison and have all their things written down in a large ledger it's all paper-based no digital technology anywhere okay so um, there are obsolete systems in in prisons uh, undoubtedly Um, and if you were to look at that system you would think there must be better ways of running this can we do this any better and the answer would uh, undoubtedly be Yes, we could, and often in the past the private sector has been rimming with ideas, offering up solutions to things like that, and it's it's a really interesting question at the moment. I mean, we've had, it's a mature market, so we started privatising prisons in the early 90s, we've had 25 years really, and and it's 20% of the market now. It's it's matured really, and you know, three companies have this, this share of the market, um, and there's you know like it or not there's quite a lot of knowledge and experience in the private sector. We've got very very long contracts up to 25 years with these organisations that are very expensive to cancel and um, uh, so we've sort of got that but you can see really uh, a a loss of sort of I think confidence really in the private sector model really in government now um, uh, which is sort of moving to a sort of retrenchment towards the public sector. The latest, the newest prison that's being built, Berwyn, is, is a public sector prison, first one in you know 25 years or whatever, um, and it's going to be run by the prison service but it will promise 33% of its resources to commissioned private sector charities, and who else. So it's a new type of model that seems to reflect moving away from you know really 25 years of new public management let's outsource everything and hope for the best and you know, not manage contracts properly and then hope for the best you know. so I'm being slightly facetious there but uh, that's it could be an end of an era.
1: Private companies may be able to experiment more freely with their
2: operations but they also face financial burdens. There are some companies that are really struggling at the moment. I mean, they're struggling with their reputation. They're obviously struggling with the standard of the services they're providing. Um, it may be that they're completely overstretched, and they, you know, they've had a model. What's made these companies very successful—the Circo's, the Miti's, the G4s, the Captors—is that they—they're um, very good at diversifying, and applying, um, uh, or replicating a particular model, uh, and. That is, it's very problematic because they become very overstretched very quickly. And certainly if at the moment when there's no money around, um, there is an understanding that you've got to bid low to get the contracts. um, Then probably the last two prison service um, procurements have been won on very, very tight, um, you know, Contract,
1: Doesn't
4: you. sound very sustainable,
2: really. it, it, it absolutely isn't, and you can see that it's it, it's um, it's running into problems now, and that uh, that's a both sides thing. I mean, the government will, or the, the Ministry of Justice will make it clear to the contractors that they're interested in lowest bids, but taking into consideration value for money as well. They would never say, "Oh, we just take the lowest bid," but it's clearly a big part of it. And these companies are very, very, um, you know, there's competition between them and they're, and they're keen to win the contracts, because they're 25-year contracts, you know, you win that and you're... Um, so, uh, the, 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 the thresholds are being pushed to the limit now. Um, and, I mean, with the Birmingham riots, for example, the, uh, all of the independent inquiries into, into the Birmingham riots, where the, the staffing levels were totally insufficient. So maybe we've reached a point now where it's not sustainable, really, anymore.
1: If both the financial and operational pressures facing both public and privately run prisons are unlikely to be eased any time soon, what options are there to improve the system's outlook? Professor Lacey co-authored a report for the British Academy, which argued that the government should seek to reduce the prison population by framing prison as a final resort. I asked her what this might achieve. You know, it's, no, it's one thing to say the
3: prison system is broken. But of course, we don't live in a world in which the prison system is going to be abolished. That is not realistic. So uh, the question is, how can we present alternatives that might get some purchase politically, be possible for governments to deliver? And secondly, what, what would we like to aim for? So to, to try and roll those two together, I think what we should be aiming for is a really radical reduction in the size of the prison system. We should be using imprisonment only for really serious offenders who, are, who pose uh, the sorts of threats to others, of violence, of sexual offences, um, that are um, really not such as a civilised society should have to tolerate.
1: What would you say to the people that might say that that just makes the wider society less safe?
3: I'm not advocating abolition. What I do think is that there is really poor evidence that very lengthy sentences make a big extra effect in terms of crime reduction, in terms of incapacitation. If you look, for example, just to take a, sort a reassuring fact, the age demographics of offending are very striking. You are not necessarily making the world a safer place by having people in prison in their 50s and 60s and 70s but you are spending a lot of public money and you're making prisons very difficult places to manage and you're making them overcrowded which means that perhaps the people who do need a spell in prison are getting a worse experience which means that they're more likely to offend when they come out so it's a really bad cycle for the vast majority of offenders and really I would think you know, more than half those in prison today. Um, Interventions which are in the community and money put into preventive work, particularly with young offenders, where there is evidence that many young offender institutions cost more per year, per capita, than A very posh public boarding school. Now, I'm not advocating sending young offenders to Eton. However, it's just a measure of the resources that we are squandering in a society, in our society, to actually make matters worse. So I think that our best hope really is to persuade the government and really work with judges as well to try to persuade them that for the vast majority of property offences, for the vast majority of first, even second offences, for the vast majority of young offenders, for the vast majority of women offenders, imprisonment is just, uh, it's using a sledgehammer, not even to crack a nut, but to make a nut, well, maybe crack a nut is a good analogy.
1: Reducing the number of offences that lead to a custodial sentence would, of course, reduce the prison population. But a look at the breakdown of prisoners according to their ethnic background reveals further interesting findings. Sharon has visited prisons across the world, and one commonality they appear to have is an imbalance when it comes to the ethnic backgrounds of those imprisoned for criminal offences.
4: Another thing that I found in New Zealand which is similar uh, in the US and in England and Wales is the racial makeup of segregation units. Now... To some degree, uh, the the makeup uh, in segregation units were very si- was very similar to the makeup of prisons more generally, which is to say, um, a massive overrepresentation of uh, non-white people, uh, or uh, BAME as we call them in this country, in segregation units. So just kind of to illustrate, so uh, in England and Wales, we found that whilst um, people of, of of white British origin made around eighty percent of the uh, they made a similar percent of the prison population, 73.1%, um, and 70.6% of the segregation population, so similar. When it came to black British people, uh, they made only 3.4% of the general population, but 12.6% of the prison population, and an even higher percent of the segregation population, 155 So massive overrepresentation. representation Nicola Lacey also highlights the problematic nature of the
1: racial mix of the prison population. She stresses that while this could be viewed as showing the prison system as having fundamental problems, this racial disparity is symptomatic of a broader problem in society.
3: Another issue uh, which we share sadly with many other countries, most other countries, is the racial composition of the prison population. And this is not just the prison population, but it's particularly striking uh, that the proportion of particularly black Britons um, incarcerated is out of all proportion to their representation in the population, Uh, to an even greater degree, in fact, than than in the United States. It's more of a headline issue in the United States because, of course, the total African-American population is greater and the prison population is greater, so it's a much more visible problem. But it's a real problem in this country, as indeed it is in Australia, particularly some parts of Australia uh, and in New Zealand, where it's even worse than here in terms of disproportion. And this is, again, I think, a sign that we're not thinking carefully enough about who we imprison and why. there are, all, there are many, many complex reasons, including discrimination, but not only in discrimination, as to why uh, the, the, this racial dis- disproportion exists. There's a big overlap with poverty, class and opportunity. Essentially, prisons are full of people who have not had good opportunities in life.
1: If we are going to improve the way that we manage criminals and sort of Operate prisons that it has to be done as a much wider look at overall society?
3: I think so. And this is, of course, the hard thing because um, it would be nice to think there was a criminal justice solution. But really, most complex social policy problems are not insulated, they interact with other problems. So I would say you have to think about the prison system not simply in the context of the criminal justice system policing sentencing and so on but also housing and education these probably the basic ones but also labor market but really it's housing and education that are the ones that are really crucial to people's and of course family structure as well but you know generally if people have good education opportunities and decent housing access to work then they have a much better opportunity for to give their children a decent start in life and, and really it's that social dimension to crime prevention which has
1: been squeezed out. Despite the issues with who we incarcerate, how we fund the system and the ways that prisoners are managed while inside there are some signs of positivity. Here is Sharon talking about the way prisoners and segregation units in England and Wales describe their relationships with the officers in charge of supervising them and her surprise at finding evidence that, even in the harshest of
4: places, supportive relationships can thrive. I was quite surprised. Again, coming from a human rights world, where everyone, you know, you're either uh, with us or against us, I was used to think, I admit, I used, was used to think about stuff as sort of not exactly the enemy, but certainly someone's enemy sort of on the other side, Uh, I was surprised and delighted, frankly, to find that um, not everyone, but most of the prison staff we spoke to in segregation units were extremely empathetic. They understand where the prisoners were coming from. They took time to interact with them. Uh, They were able to tell us things like, You may want to speak to X today, he's a bit sad, his girlfriend just broke up with him. Or you might want to speak to Y, his mother is unwell. So they really showed, uh, demonstrated a, a real knowledge of the prisoner and real empathy. And in this sense, yes, England and Wales are doing something right. So is our prison system broken?
1: While it may be struggling with some fundamental issues, perhaps it's not fair to damn the system completely. Delivering justice humanely is never going to be easy, and certainly none of our experts feel the system is beyond repair. For those who share Michael Howard's approach to prison, a thought from Sharon Shalev, that whatever our views on crime and punishment, we all have a stake in ensuring that prison operates as successfully as possible.
4: First of all, it costs us money to have people in prison. It's costing a lot of money. Uh, Secondly, prison is in itself the punishment. You're not supposed to punish people further when they are in prison. Thirdly, there is the moral argument. You need to treat people properly. You need to treat them right. It's also a legal obligation as well as a moral obligation. And fourthly, in a very selfish way, you need to think who you want as a neighbour. As I said earlier, these people are eventually, most of them, not all of them, most of them are going to be released. And do we want someone who has been treated like an animal, or do we want someone with whom some positive work had been done? Why not tell us what you think
1: using the hashtag LSEIQ?
0: This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by Shay Forbes Taylor, Tom Williams, James Ruttee, and Jess Winterstein, and was based in part on the following research Governance, Performance, and Capacity Stress, The Chronic Case of Prison Crowding by Simon Basto, The Prisoner's Dilemma. Political Economy and Punishment in Contemporary Democracies by Nicola Lacey, A Presumption Against Imprisonment: Social Order and Social Values by Rob Allen, Andrew Ashworth, Roger Cotterell, Andrew Coyle, Anthony Duff, Nicola Lacey, Alison Liebling, and Rod Morgan, and Deep Custody: Segregation Units and Close Supervision Centres in England and Wales, and Sourcebook on Solidarity Confinement by Sharon Shalev. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe on iTunes and SoundCloud, please visit bit.ly forward slash LSEIQ or search for LSEIQ in your favourite podcast app. See you next time when we ask, why is social mobility in decline?